0: Welcome back to Catalyze, a podcast from the Moorhead Cain Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Caroline Leland, producer and host. This month, May 2019, marks the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the Moorhead Cain program in Great Britain. So today you're listening to the second Catalyze episode featuring a Moorhead Cain alum from the UK. In this episode, I chat with Michelle Yana-Chan, an award-winning journalist based in London. Michelle began her career with Newsweek magazine in New York, Beijing, and London before she moved into radio and then television as a news producer for CNN. is now travel editor of Vanity Fair, contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and the BBC's presenter of Global Guide. She also writes for The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, Travel and Leisure, and Tatler. Michelle has been the Travel Media Awards Travel Writer of the Year, the AITO Travel Writer of the Year, and Latin American Travel Association's Writer of the Year. Her writing has been included in three anthologies. Her debut novel, titled Song, was published in July 2018. In our conversation, you'll hear more about Song, about Michelle's forthcoming new book, Duet, and about the rest of her incredible travel writing career.
1: My name is Michelle Yana Chan, and I'm a London-based journalist and writer and broadcaster and novelist. And I've been here, um, living here for on and off for the last decade, I think. But I've been moving around a lot since I left Chapel Hill.
0: You've worked in a lot of different countries for a lot of different media outlets. Throughout your career, have there been specific pieces that you feel particularly proud of or that have felt particularly meaningful to you in your work? And I know that's a lot to to kind of review in your mind, but maybe it's your novel. Maybe it's a piece you did early on that you were proud of. Are there pieces that stand out to you when you think about your body of work? I think, you know,
1: there are some that are quite naturally become a bit of a landmark, like your first cover story at a serious news magazine. I remember my first cover was for Newsweek magazine. The title was I Love Nylon, which wasn't talking about a textile, but it was NY as in New York and then a hyphen and then L O N as, you know, standing for London. And I wrote that between the two cities. But I think probably, in truth, the more meaningful stories that you know really either life-changing or, or moments that you, you can personally feel have been momentous on a more emotional level, but not really career-changing, let's say. Um, well, numerous in truth, but one that stands out more recently, or 2015, was, was when I was in Nepal and covering a story about how a lot of the new infrastructure from hydroelectric power, a lot of the dams that were going up and a lot of the good civil engineering projects, like new roads, were changing the nature of the country when it came to trekking and what it was best known for was kind of going into the mountains. And that was the story I was—I thought I was going to be doing when the April 2015 earthquake hit. And I was just by chance the closest journalist to the epicentre, just about 10 kilometres away. So I took my hat off from that kind of long read features story and put my news hat on and it was you know it was an extraordinary moment to be so I didn't of course know how close I was to the epicenter when it happened I called in to the BBC and I and I was as much as I could kind of trying to describe what was on the ground you know minutes after it happened and I I guess you do feel like you're in a very Unique position and the privileged position, really, that you know, the great and grave responsibility that hangs with it to make sure that you're really staying neutral and calm while so much is going on around you.
0: Did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist?
1: No, I didn't. So, I think when I finished school in the UK, I'd applied to study medicine at a university in the UK, and and the system of education here is that you apply to university with a VIX degree. So that's what I was bound off to go and do, except the wonderful Moorhead Kane interrupted my plans, which was just joyful. And I headed off to the States where, of course, you have this much broader education. You can flip things and change your mind. So I was all set to do medicine because I was good at science and it seemed like a very natural transition. But one of the key reasons why I wanted to do it was because it gave me a passport to travel and to move between places, you know, the role of a doctor you know, is sought after almost everywhere and anywhere. Whereas, for example, if you'd studied law, you know, you'd be very much bound up by by where you studied law. So that was the allure really of medicine. Other than that, you know, that was quite a strong subject for me. But when I went to the States, it was Chapel Hill gave me so much. That's just one thing it gave me, which was this diversity of subject matter to study and I'd always loved writing in truth, but I, nevertheless, it did remind me or open my eyes to the fact that there's another thing that can also give you a passport to movement, and that is writing well and being reliable and all those other important characteristics that one must have as a journalist. So I changed. I did start actually in science and medical journalism when I first uh, entered. I thought it was quite a strategic way of going about moving into journalism because there there's less people who are writing about that. It's hard thing to write about something. You know, it's quite dry. You know, to write about it well is quite challenging. So I, that's how I kind of shifted into journalism.
0: Do you have thoughts about this this whole um, phenomenon of, of fake news or poor media literacy, especially in the U.S.? I don't really know how this this topic is discussed in the U.K., but from your perspective, do you have ideas of? What could be done to help people trust the media more, or help the media earn trust better, or just kind of how to solve this this crisis that we have had over the last, especially over the last few years, in regards to what's what's been called fake news? Wow, Caroline, if I had the solution to that, I, I,
1: um, <laughs> I, I mean, there are there are some, some ideas to improve the situation, I think, and. One is to really get kids at a young age to have for there to be subject matter, and right. you know, there's education around kind of understanding the news, digesting the news, figuring out you know how to read a newspaper, whether that's a newspaper online or you know hard copy, which is becoming less and less prevalent. But I, I did a class for my eldest daughter who's six, um, recently, and because it was more straightforward to use a hard copy in front of a class as a demonstration but i i taught them how to read a newspaper which i think is actually a skill you know whether you're doing that online or or you know on a tangible copy that all has to be taught and learned i think that's a much trickier i mean you can learn it kind of on the job as it were but i think it's an important thing to understand kind of how news is placed on a website or mm-hmm. on you know on a paper copy and i think Then this kind of sense of curating our own news that's become something much more important, where we we're the ones selecting from this huge array of news, whether that's oral or video, as well as print and online and digital and so forth. And I think that is another; it's a skill set that you know really isn't kind of handled well, perhaps at the school age level, but should be because it's becoming more and more important as a skill. I think you know my generation there was a few. TV networks and one of them in this country that I live in still um, in the UK we have the BBC which is funded by the people who watch it, we have to pay a license to watch the BBC and it's subsidized by the government. And so I think an automatic reaction by some people is, wow, if it's subsidized by the government, then surely, you know, it was playing to the government too, but it's it actually quite the contrary. So it's seen as this kind of bastion of neutrality, which you can argue for and against as well. But nevertheless, that we didn't have a lot of choices. And so that's kind of the generation I grew up in. And now, of course, there's a huge amount and some of it, some of the news out there, um, you know, I would not classify as news, and I think this is kind of part of the education process. And you know, some is strongly opinionated, and that's you know an important part of of the media. But it's um, you know you wouldn't necessarily classify it as news, as kind of reported news, factual news, neutral news. And I think trying to kind of differentiate between all these different channels of news that we are receiving is such a critical thing for young people to to be agile about and to be dexterous about kind of using but it's it's a real issue I think probably more acute in the U.S. than it is in the UK probably you know more acute in the U.S. than it is in, in arguably all of Western Europe um, mm-hmm. there's become a lot of dogma between different magazines online and right. and also on the TV network so it's troubling it's really troubling I think when the fourth state starts to crumble the way it has in the states you know It becomes very problematic politically.
0: Do you have ideas of what the future of news media looks like in in terms of, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of movement towards online, obviously, and there's a lot of, a lot of new business models that are being proposed and tested. Is that something you spend time thinking about or, or worrying about? It does preoccupy me a lot. And and I think I probably
1: am on the more optimistic end of the spectrum. Often when young Moorhead Kane. um, students call me up and, and talk to me about journalism I, I couldn't be more enthusiastic actually because there's a lot more scope and there's a lot more diversity and there's a lot more opportunity because there's just more of it and I remember kind of in my 20s you know 20 years ago when I was receiving those kind of calls I would and people were asking me how to get into journalism you would either go to kind of your local rag um, kind of a regional paper and work your way up a, a very very tall ladder or alternatively you might um, and it's the one I always kind of suggested to try to catalyse that process was to kind of travel to a part of the of the world and make your home there for a while somewhere where there weren't very many journalists so the competition wasn't too strong and wait for the story in a way like dig stories but but the stories will hit over time and so those used to be kind of my top tips in the past and that just you know that just is just is not necessary anymore at all because there are so many outlets and opportunities I think it goes back there of course to to um if you want to be engaged and well read in the news then you know the audience needs to be kind of well versed on how to inform themselves but from the perspective of the journalist and upcoming journalists and you know me you know staying kind of active and and sought after as a journalist in this industry then I think there's still nothing that can take away from quality journalism good writing or let's say excellent writing kind of good terms of phrase I think reliability speed on the ground speed has probably become more acute than ever they you know everyone wants you to write quicker I think also in the ability to work across media that's been hugely useful I mean I was very strategic about that I've always been drawn to writing but I knew it was important to go into radio and tv so I did that partly you know as a canny move and that has served me very well because very few print journalists don't like to transcend into into doing for example podcasts or video or filming and that has I think been very critically useful for me but I think it is trying to have more skill set and so when I think of the future of news media that what people want I think is they they want a much more 360 experience they they might want to read something they might want to see photographs from that place but they will also want to see you know hear you somewhere perhaps you know as a podcast or they might want to see a short video or a time-lapse video but that package I think is becoming much more the norm, but I think there will be increased amounts of media. Of course, there will. I mean, that, that's just a trajectory that will continue. And I, from a reader's point of view an audience point of view, it's just about figuring out what serves you best and making sure that you have this very balanced and very diverse array of media, arguably coming from lots of different places, not just the region that you that you inhabit.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have advice specifically for travel writing? I know that that's a dream job for a lot of people. And I don't know if, if you have any advice particular to that field of work as opposed to being a, a journalist or a writer in general. Goodness, that's, um, that's kind of the killer question I get
1: asked all the time. Um, right. <laughs> I know because it does sound it does sound as wonderful in truth as it is. And I don't want to pretend it isn't. Like I know a lot of travel journalists say, oh, there's no glamour at all. Um, but I am no happier than I am to be on the dusty road exploring the world. So it is for me as great as it sounds. And to aspire to that, I think, Or well, when I commission writers, I do want, if they're writers that haven't kind of had a lot of experience and, and kind of proven their worth to me, then I do really admire someone who's come from news, because I think you learn a lot of important skills by working as a news reporter. It doesn't have to be that way. But I think if you do a bit of time as a news reporter, it makes you quick, it makes you reliable, it makes you know your reporting quite rigorous. What it doesn't give you, I think, though, which travel writing needs is uh, sense of place in a very evocative and colour-driven way. Often when you're doing news reporting, you're paring it down and keeping it simple. You can still have a very, very nice turn of phrase, but I think in terms of um, painting pictures with your words, that is done less for a very good reason in news reporting. So I think you bolt on to your, the, your news reporting skills kind of the beautiful lyrical writing and you get most of that from reading I think you get it from reading and you get it from practicing writing and writing and writing as much as you can and you know just like it is with probably any task
0: Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me yeah And so switching gears a little bit, I want to hear you talk about your novel. I I read that it was inspired, at least in part, by your parents' immigrant story and and your subsequent move to China. And I'm curious if you would share a little bit about what it was like for you writing that novel and and maybe a little bit about the reception it's received and what you've experienced since since it came out.
1: Well, I feel like most journalists that, you know, we've got to write long form at some point. I feel like I was quite late in the game on writing song and I absolutely strung it out. I, it was not this really efficient, effective use of my time. I just I made it this kind of this slightly kind of a habit that I would that I would tap into time to time. And so I really couldn't even imagine collectively, accumulatively how much time I put into it it probably um it was drawn out though over over years and and I also was quite self-indulgent about it I I you know I said to myself in a very romantic absurd way oh I can only write in the mountains or in the desert so I'd go off for a month and just write that and not do anything else mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but anyway it happened and you know it's it's very pleasing to get it out there after, after such a long period of time that said you know as soon as it's out you know because you've been working on it for so long and and you finished, you know, you put the last period on the page quite a long time before it's actually published. It does feel like ancient history for me right now, but it's, it's a story of a young, what we would call today an economic migrant who in the late 19th century travels from one side of the world to another, from China to a country in South America, formerly called British Guyana, but now independent is called Guyana. And it's a young boy who makes that journey, seeking a better life on the other side of the world, which is like so many people today, and has been, you know, ever since that era. Then they were called indentured servants. It was just after slavery was abolished, but there was suddenly this need for labor in all these plantations. There was the new business model, new economic model, was called indentured servitude, and so there's exactly those same models in many ways going on today. And so I felt like actually had a lot of contemporary resonance it was a lot of the same themes of migration and displacement and the push pull factors around the world that we read about today and we experience and we see you know i've definitely been an economic migrant so i traveled from chapel hill to china because of a, a job really you know so in the same way but probably you know less extreme conditions so song um song came out last year july last year and it's a lot of fun when a book becomes published because you have lots of parties and you have um, lots of talks and mm-hmm. and it was really enjoyable. I loved those first few months, but then of course, in my headspace, I've moved on. I'm writing my second book right now, and but it it you know has had a nice readership. It's had some nice reviews. I'm very grateful for those. And but I'm I'm moved away. For, that was a fiction, of course, and this although there was there was elements of um, my and my dad's side of the family, but really it is it is a, a work of fiction. But some family history was was woven in. And now I'm writing a book with the working title Duet. And that is a book I'm writing with someone else. She's a professor at the Royal College of Art. And it's a co-authored book of actually fiction and non-fiction. It's, I think in the business they call it genre-defying, which always sounds rather pretentious. But the idea is that she... And I are writing a book about the strong themes of today, really. It's, it's a very contemporary book on looking at identity politics and and religion and gender and movement and the passage of time. And we're about halfway, so I'll keep you posted on that one.
0: That's really exciting. Do you have a release date for that, or is it too soon?
1: We don't. Um, we're probably We've written about half the copy and um and we have an agent and it's yeah we're but we're fiddling around the structure it's quite experimental I mean I think we really hope to to I I think we can finish it this year I think it should be out next year but um who knows
0: right I mean books are hard I feel like notoriously hard to predict (laughs) when it comes to process you're right um that sounds amazing I'm looking forward to seeing how that turns out thank you Caroline I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about your thoughts on the Moorhead cane in general. So one of the reasons why your name came up as a a great potential guest for our podcast is because we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of British students or people being in the Moorhead cane program. And I was curious if you had thoughts on if there's any sort of unique advantages to being a Moorhead cane from Great Britain, from the UK, or just in general, if how you feel the scholarship has been meaningful in your life path.
1: Oh, a total game changer for me. I mean, you've heard already that, you know, I was scheduled to go off um, to university in the UK and study medicine. And it um, turned out I went off to the US and became a journalist. So it, it, it had profound implications, I think, for the rest of my life, partly because of the, the way that education happens at undergraduate level on your side of the Atlantic and that kind of freedom that it allows but also because, you know, um, although I came from from a family which really didn't pay much regard for boundaries and borders, like we all were very used to kind of the fluidity of migration and movement. Nevertheless, it still also broadens one's horizons and just makes you believe that. I almost unconsciously, I never thought this at the time, but when I've been asked to analyse it, perhaps like I am now, I really realised that I just feel like my place is on the planet and and, and I was never... I was never kind of shoehorned into into one particular GPS location so I think that probably enhanced that kind of kind of moving to the states from a british point of view I think um you know you arrive and there's not very many british moorhead cane scholars on campus and Chapel Hill became my new home I mean it really was as important and meaningful as that and the Brits you know they just it's just a, a really it's such a ticket out of here to somewhere where you can have all these very new dreams to realize. So when I, quite interesting, when I left the UK university education was completely free. And in addition to that, the government subsidized your living expenses. So that going off to university in, in the UK in the early nineties didn't cost you a penny. When I left, you know, the financial side of it was was less relevant in many ways because you know, if I'd gone to university in the UK, it also wouldn't have cost me. But what it did give me, which I, I didn't really realise at the time, or one of the many million things that it gave me, was this total freedom, I think. Because I think if you're close to home and close to the pressures of home, perhaps, like quite literally, kind of like geographically close as much you know even if you don't have a decent relationship with your parents but i did have a decent relationship there is expectation and un, often unspoken unsaid expectation and you know i'm the first to confess that i'm i seek approval from from them too and uh, even now probably to my horror and i think that slightly evaporates with the distance and with the sense of total independence financial independence and self-reliance suddenly there wasn't this I, I, I was really felt like I, you know, I could make my own choices. Reflecting on that now, I remember feeling that sense of liberation very strongly.
0: You've been listening to Catalyze, a podcast from the Moorhead Cain Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We're grateful to Michelle for telling us about her dynamic writing career and for sharing her unique perspective as a British Moorhead Kane. And thanks, as always, to Creighton Irons Moorhead Kane Class of 2005 for our wonderful theme music. You can find more of Creighton's work at creightonirons.com. That's C R E I G H T O N I R O N S.com. If you've enjoyed what you've been hearing on Catalyze, please tell your friends. Help us spread the word and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That will help other people find us. Thank you, as always, for listening.